Well, I'd like to invite you to Amos chapter 3 with me this morning. Amos is a minor prophet book in the toward the back of your Old Testament. Hopefully by now you've made some sort of, sort of mark of where Amos is. If, if not, there is no shame in looking at your table of contents. Amos chapter 3, verse 1 this morning. Now many of you will have heard the familiar refrain, especially if you are an Uh, a firstborn or an older child, you would have heard the refrain from your parents when you were getting in trouble, and yet your younger sibling wasn't getting in trouble. You would have heard that you have higher expectations, that you're older and you should know better, and you set the example. I had no idea my mother would be here this morning, but that was in my notes. Because also, you might have been like me growing up, hearing that speech from mom and dad, while your little, little sister was laughing and pointing fingers at you behind their back. The principle is that the older child not only has to break in mom and dad, the firstborn often has a different set of expectations set upon them, and I think rightly, rightly so. It's not that the rules are different between children in a household. It's that the adherence to those rules are different. The expectation for the older child is spot on. They should know better. They have lived longer. They've been disciplined more. They've known the rules longer. The standard isn't different. The application, the expectation of that application is indeed different. We find that very principle in our legal system. Typically, minors are treated and tried differently when they commit a crime than adults. Because we know that children, minors, make childlike decisions. And we guess that adults should know better. That they have more responsibility put upon them. They're in entrusted with greater responsibility. They also have been around longer and they've learned more and so they are treated with more sternness. What's interesting is that principle played out in the family and played out in any government's legal system is a principle that was actually founded by God. Families and governments only follow suit because God actually employs the same sort of standards and the same sort of application it's god who says that some are held to a higher standard and higher account than others some know better some have been around longer some should set the example Jesus teaches the same thing in Luke chapter 12, verse 48. It's the same principle, different language. He says, everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand all the more. Paul uses the same principle about his own ministry. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful, likening himself to a steward entrusted with the gospel. He says, if you've been entrusted with a treasure, it's your responsibility to be faithful with what's been entrusted to you. 
So whether mom and dad know it or whether governments know it, they're following along with the same line of thinking and the same principle as God. That's what we come to find in Amos chapter 3 this morning. It's no surprise to us that God deals with Israel in this sort of fashion. That because they know more, because they've been given more, they've been given the very oracles and prophets of God, they are responsible for more. Brothers and sisters, belonging to God in name or confession or even in genuine faith does not get us a pass from our obligations to God. It enhances our responsibility to God. Now, as we come to Amos chapter 3, it is important for me to note that God is not disciplining Israel here. Hebrews chapter 12 talks about God disciplining His people, disciplining them as sons and daughters because He loves us, because we're His children and He's our Father and He's doing what's best for us. But Israel here is not facing discipline, they're facing destruction. They're facing what God says when he uses the word in verse 2, punishment. It's different than discipline. Israel's at a unique place in their history. Remember, they're divided. Judah is the southern kingdom. Israel's the northern kingdom. And by the time Hosea and Amos come on the scene to Israel in the northern kingdom, they have totally rejected God's covenant. I believe they have mixed... Some religion, got, uh, some religion from the Old Testament with other pagan religions, but mostly they have rebelled against God, which has led to all of the indictments that we've seen in chapter 2 against Israel. All of the wicked ways, all of the sinful things that God mentions back in chapter 2, verse 6 and verse 7, even down to verse 12, verse 8. Those come because at this point in their history, they have rejected God and they have rejected God for generations. And so my point is this. You might try to mingle your Christianity or your faith in with other things. You might try to enhance your walk with God with other things. You might even bear some of the language of belonging to God. You might even bear the name of Israel. You might even have the lineage and the heritage that comes from the patriarchs. But if your heart is not over to God, you are not right with God. Bearing all the right language and all the external trappings and even trying to do the external works, not only does it make you right with God, it doesn't even keep you from going astray. Israel had gone astray and they'd gone astray primarily because they rejected God. And so God in Amos is is calling them out for two primary things, their oppression of their poor and their false religious practices. By the way, never mentioning their worship of pagan gods, rather mentioning their breaking of their relationship with him. But he does all of that because they think that they are okay before God even having bearing the name of Israel, and yet God says, I'm after your heart, not your external trappings. So do all the right works and 
come from the right lineage and be of the right nation and this, that, or the other. It does not make you right with God, nor does it keep you on the path of righteousness. Thus, my desire for you and I as we walk through Amos is to realize that very same truth that we may sit here today a lot like Israel in some regards. Lord willing, by His grace, we haven't outright rejected God. We haven't cast aside the covenant. But there are always some intermingled amongst God's people who think that their heritage, their lineage, their name, their ethnicity, their nationality, their churchy practices... Make them right before God. And the truth is the exact opposite. Brothers and sisters, Amos forces us to examine ourselves. To make sure that we're not just going through the motions and thus thinking we're right before God. But to actually make sure that we believe what we profess, that our hearts belong to God. So as we come to Amos 3 this morning, we're going to find God engaging in another judgment speech against Israel. By the way, he's bringing them to disaster through these judgment speeches. They're going to go into exile a few generations after Amos and after Hosea and not return. These are the consequences of rejecting Jehovah. Of thinking that God is not going to stay true to his word. That God's warnings are idle. Or that God really doesn't care about how we live our lives. So as we come to Amos chapter 3, we're going to try to get down to, to verse 8 this morning. We're going to look at God's summary announcement in verse 1 and 2. We're going to look at God's justification in verses 3 through 6. And then verses 7 through 8, we're going to look at God's constant public warning or constant public admonition. Look with me in verse 1 of Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. Against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taking, taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing a secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Well, Amos begins where God has him begin in verse 1 there. 
getting their attention, the, the people of Israel getting their attention. And he says, hear this from Yahweh. Listen, pay attention. God has spoken. But he makes a shocking announcement. He says, God has not spoken to you, Israel, as he has in the past, trying to warn you, patiently and mercifully enduring with you, trying to bring you to repentance. No, now God has spoken against you. Hold the whole people of Israel. Notice the language. The whole family of Israel. None of you are left out. We all know what it means to be part of a family. We all have the, the weird uncle and the crazy aunt. And no matter what we try to do, we can't keep them away. They're family. They have the same blood and they share the same name and they're always around. No one is excluded in a family. God is saying the same thing to Israel. You are all under the same name and of the same blood and of the same heritage. You're all one family. I'm addressing you all. And then he says, the family that, get this, I brought up out of the land of Egypt. That's a, a familiar phrase, one of God's favorite designations and out throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. It's a reminder of God's provision. It's a reminder of God's care. It's a reminder of God's ultimately deliverance. And the, the parallels between the deliverance out of Egypt and the salvation of Jesus Christ especially through the Passover, are profound. God is now looking to a family that he, by the way, had founded, that he had, number two, delivered. And he says, now I speak against you. It's telling also, because in that phrase, you're the family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt, anybody who was familiar with with Jewish history, Israelite history would have remembered Egypt and their oppressive nature and their oppressive state and how they enslaved God's people, but primarily how God judged them to deliver his own people. And yet, as we have read through and seen in Amos and will see in Amos, we now find Israel acting just like Egypt. Egypt oppressed Israel, and now Israel oppresses its own poor. Egypt subverted and confused justice, and Israel now subverts and confused justice in its own land. Egypt was a place of pagan worship and religion, and now Israel, the northern kingdom, has become the exact same place. And so what God did to Egypt in judging them, He's now going to do to Israel. Verse 1 is an attention grabber. Verse 2 is God's summary statement. It's this statement that God makes that's going to highlight the rest of chapter 3. And the rest of chapter 3 is going to build on and flow from verse 2. And he begins by highlighting that your judgment, Israel, is different from everybody else's judgment. Now, I've been telling you from chapter 1 and chapter 2 that God holds everybody accountable. It's interesting, isn't it, that in chapter 2, verse 4 through the end of the chapter, God directs his judgment on Judah, who presumably is still trying to walk with God, and Israel. 
But in all of chapter 1 and in the first three verses of chapter 2, God pronounces in the same pattern, with the same vernacular, the same kind of judgment on all the pagan nations. It's a reminder that it doesn't matter if you have God's word or not, if you have God's prophets or not, everybody is accountable to God. And the reason is clear. He is the God of heaven and earth. Everyone will give an answer to him. But Israel's judgment in God's estimation as we come into Amos chapter 3 is different primarily because, number one, his relationship with them. Look at verse 2. He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God begins by establishing the singular, exclusive relationship that he had with Israel. He uses that word only. And he contrasts it with the phrase, out of all the families of the earth. Flip over just real quickly to the front of your Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's an important text as you contemplate the history of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7 talks about God choosing Israel and why he chose them. Look in verse 6. And we won't read all of it. We'll just read verse 6, 7, and 8. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. God speaking says, You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You see the familiar language? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were actually the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Back in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, that should be on our minds. You only have I known out of everybody else, and not because you are more splendid or more powerful or larger or more majestic, simply because I know you, I chose you, I set my love on you, you are mine. And so God highlights that exclusive history that he shared with Israel out of everybody else. It's just been me and you. And then he says in verse two. It's really the foundation of that exclusive relationship. You only have I known. That word known means more than mere facts. It means relational presence it, it means interaction it means intimacy based on exposure we've been together we have we haven't just become familiar with one another we've actually grown to know one another a kind of knowledge that only comes because we spend time with each other and we're in one another's presence and we disclose information about each other to one another it carries the idea of a, a knowledge between spouses. A knowledge between children and parents. A knowledge between family. 
And notice what God says when he when he talks about knowing them. He says, you only have I known. He takes the responsibility for this relationship and he puts it squarely on his own shoulders. I initiated it. I sustained it. I established it. I've continued it on. I have chosen you out of all the families of the earth to be mine and mine alone. So that you and I, Israel, we've shared a unique relationship. A personal and an intimate relationship. One that you don't find with other nations on this planet. Then God does something strange in verse 2. After highlighting this unique, exclusive, intimate relationship, he turns his attention and says, that's why you're going to be punished. It's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't really drive with our worldly thinking. Usually, we look to our relationships that we have with somebody important, and we use those relationships to get us whatever we want. If I know the governor, I'm going to use that relationship to get access to the governor. And when I have access to the governor, I'm going to try to get him to do what I want him to do. We, we learn that behavior from early on as kids. We look to our parents and who they are and what they do in the world. And we even build a little bit of our identity off of that. So it's strange then. When God uses this word in verse 2, therefore. It means since you have such an exclusive intimate relationship with me building out of that exclusive intimate relationship comes this punishment and as i said at the beginning the reason for that i think is clear they've had all the blessings and privileges in a real sense they're god's firstborn until christ comes Israel is often referred to as the son of God. They're the older child. They were meant to be the example. They've known the rules longer than anybody else. They've not only known the rules, they've been given the prophets, which means by God's gracious initiative, they've been given God's instructions, God's exhortations, God's standards. They've been given God's promises and God's warnings. And in God's eyes, in God's economy of justice, that doesn't give them that pass that we talked about earlier. That doesn't reduce their obligation of obedience. That actually enhances their responsibility before God. He looks to his eldest son on the face of the earth and says, you should have known better. We've all seen those people in life who seem to have all the whether it be intellectual ability or athletic ability or or anything else going for them from a worldly perspective and then they make a couple of really bad decisions and ruin their lives and we often say man what a lot of wasted potential israel is the living example of a country's wasted potential 
having had an exclusive relationship with God, one that should have endeared them to him in obedience, one that should have set them apart as an example to all the other nations. Well, now it's turned into a relationship of punishment because having had all the privileges and blessings that come along, they rejected God anyways. So we have the word, therefore. Brothers and sisters, remember, we have the Bible. We have the freedom to gather every week. We have the ability, and in our church, I believe the blessing of having multiple individuals who can teach God's word to us clearly and faithfully. That does not lessen our obligations and requirements to God. Those are gracious gifts of God, but they also mean that we should be, of all people, most devoted to Him. We have the gospel. We know His love. We know the truth about mercy and sin. That doesn't lessen our responsibility It enhances our responsibility to share that same gospel message. So don't miss the word in verse 2, therefore. So based on this relationship, let's continue on. Therefore, I will punish you. The same responsibility that God took for knowing them, in the first phrase of verse 2, he now takes for punishing them. In the same text, we, we see this tension for our finite minds to try to grasp. A loving, intimate, personal God in great tension and equality with a just God. I said already that word punish isn't like discipline. In fact, here it's qualified in verse 2. It's a future punishment. I will punish. One may think about verse 1 of chapter 1, the earthquake that's going to be coming upon Israel. I think ultimately it talks or references to their exile. God is going to take away their kingdom. But God's judgment and God's punishment is not a causeless judgment. He says, I will punish you for all your iniquities if God's judgment is ever earned sinners earn it God does not act without reason here in fact I think that's the main theme of the rest of chapter 3 that God is going to execute judgment and it's not without reason His justification is abundantly clear. You have sinned. Sin feels too often like a harmless thing in our lives. One one aspect that we may hide, it seems victimless to us. And the consequences can seem at times largely mitigated, unfelt. But the Bible describes sin, especially to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, as crouching out the door 
and its desire is for you. It's coming for you like a lion, like a snake coiled in the grass. It seems like it's not there. It seems like its consequences aren't that big of a deal. But when it bites, it brings devastation. We've talked about this already. God has been patient with Israel. He's allowed them some economic prosperity at this time. He's allowed them some military peace. But those external blessings didn't lead them to treasure God, didn't lead them to repentance, didn't lead them to faith. It led them to complacency. And they grew complacent toward their sin, and they grew complacent toward their their wicked acts, so they actually do become a lot like Egypt, the very country that they despised because of their own previous slavery. And so all of chapter 3 here is God's reminder that my punishment and my judgment on you Israel it's not unfounded in fact I've been patient and merciful with you this judgment is because of your iniquity sin always bears severe consequences in God's eyes in fact I will say sin always hear me always 100% of the time bears punishment from God Without exception. What you and I think to be harmless, victimless acts. Let this be a deep reminder. Will always incur punishment. And if you go on without dealing with your sin before a holy God, Paul says in Romans 2, then you are because of your impenitent heart, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now let me, let me side note here, just, just because I don't want to always be the bad guy. When I say God's, God's always going to punish sin without exception, Christian, He did that in Jesus. Sin always comes with a high cost. Rebelling against God always comes with a high cost. And praise God that he loves sinners enough that he's willing to pay that cost in the blood and life of his own son. Sin has its consequences. And for the Christian... We sit here today under the mercy and grace of God because Christ bore our punishment so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that, brothers and sisters, should not breed within us the same complacency that Israel was feeling. Instead, it enhances our devotion to God. Anyways, that's a side note. That's a freebie. Verse 2. Back to verse 2. And we better speed it up so we can get to verse 8. God takes the responsibility of this future punishment, but His judgment is never without cause. He's going to punish for all your iniquities. I don't know if I've said this or not, so let me say it again. He shifts now the responsibility. 
So far, he's been the responsible party. I've known you. I will punish you. Now the responsibility shifts. I punish because of your iniquities. And notice also the detail here for all your iniquities. Being around children, you know that we have to teach them that even a little white lie is still a lie. God's people need to be reminded from time to time that even what we regard as a small sin is still a punishable iniquity. If Amos does anything for the church today, it should bolster our commitment to holiness. It should remind us that God actually does care about every single detail in our lives. Sometimes we do grow complacent. Amos will put the shockers on us to remind us, don't grow complacent. Don't cozy up with sin like it's some cuddly pet. It will bite you from the smallest insect of sin to the largest ferocious beast. It has a bite. And that bite will often come through hindering our flourishment and joy in God, but it will always come in divine punishment. So God punishes Israel based out of his exclusive relationship with them. He punishes them for all their iniquities. Look now in verses 3 through 6. I call this section section God's justification for his judgment. It's a bunch of cause and effect statements. Rhetorical questions from God. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? No. Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? No. Does a young lion cry out from his den when he's taken nothing? No. And the answer is always no, no, no. All of these things are cause and effect. A lion is roaring because something's caused it to roar. Two people are walking together because something's caused them to walk together. A bird has fallen in a snare because there is a snare. God reminds Israel judgment's coming because there's a cause. Because you've rejected God. I think we find great parallels and similarities between our country today and Israel. A free land that's had the privilege of having the scriptures rampant for generations. Now we live in a society that has largely rejected God. Make no mistake, judgment will come. It's a great, continual, constant cause. Look also here. Let's just move on to verse 7 and 8. The Lord does nothing without revealing a secret to his servants, the prophets. Remember, when you think about prophets, think about messengers who are going forth, speaking on behalf of God, these messages that God is speaking even now. And and here's the point that I just want to go ahead and move on to. Everything here has a cause and effect. God's issuing judgment even upon those who once knew him because they are they possess a higher level of responsibility. They had the privileges. They had the blessings. God's going to issue punishment on them because of 
their sin that has caused that punishment, that judgment. And furthermore, verse 7, God has not been hiding his judgment or his standards from them. It's this continual and intensifying way for God to say, you are without excuse. Oh, Israel. You're without excuse. God has not hidden his standards. God has not hidden his instructions. God has not secretly talked about his warnings or failed to reveal his promises. God has not even issued judgment in secret. He has given you messengers, the prophets. Fast forward to you and I today. He's given you the book you hold in your lap, the Bible. He hasn't done anything in secret. You're not going to be, you have no reason or excuse to be surprised when you stand before God. He's revealed his secrets through his message. So the conclusion of verse 8 is quite clear. The lion has roared, who will not fear? Remember back to chapter 1. That's how God began his message. Verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion. And thunders or utters his voice from Jerusalem. The lion has roared against Israel. There is no reason to not fear. The Lord has spoken, verse 8. Who can keep the message back? Who can but prophesy? Again, rhetorical questions. The answer is no one. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We ought to realize God's standards and punishment against sin and embrace the fear that that induces as a roadblock for us to keep us from going off the bridge. We also ought to realize God's standard of judgment and not remain silent about it. Not remain silent to our husbands or wives our children our parents our neighbors our co-workers God has done nothing in secret he won't judge in secret he hasn't warned in secret so do you not fear Do you not wish to tell the world of coming judgment against sin? Do you not wish to speak about God's righteous judgment? Do you not fear enough to repent of your sins and put away your wickedness? Are you not shaken from your slumber and stirred from your complacency? The lion is roaring. And by the way, Israel, you've stirred the, action, the lion to action. 
You've roused the lion from his den with your iniquities. And do not think, do not think your history, your nationality, or whatever else will permit you an escape from God's judgment. I want to be just silent for just a moment just to let that sit on us. Because in an age that we occupy in which we go and go and go constantly and we're busy constantly and we we do enjoy lots of great, even entertaining church things. I, I'm entertained with theological discussions and, and the access at which we have not only the scriptures, but great preaching and uh, wonderful worship songs. We can actually neglect in the midst of all of those blessings to take care of our own soul. We can actually mistake being entertained with theological discussions or moved by popular praise songs. We can actually mistake that for healthy spiritual growth. We can be so hyper-focused sometimes on grace that we actually forget to fight against sin. Well, here's the good news. And it comes from the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think, as hard as it may be for me to preach through Amos, I think the message of Amos is still a very good, healthy reminder for God's people today. Shore us up, God. And our devotion to you and our rejection of sin. Don't let us grow complacent. I don't think Amos will let us stay complacent. But we are also in the new covenant. Where we can't just land on God's judgment. Without also considering God's extended arm of mercy and grace right now. You see, God declares judgment on sin unequivocally in Amos. But where you and I sit today, in the new covenant, post-crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God not only issues and declares the same judgment against sin, but He also, in that judgment, provides a Savior. And he says through his apostles that he's being patient right now. 
And he's being merciful right now. You know why? He doesn't want any to perish. He offers repentance right now. Unbeliever, today can be the day of your salvation. Our God will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. But He will punish the guilty in His Son if you come to Him in faith. And you will be declared pardoned, forgiven for eternity, saved by the grace of God in Christ. That new life can begin for you now. This judgment of God in Amos, we often have some sort of cognizant dissonance. We, we want to reject it and push it off to the sides and not face it. Let me tell you, you have to face the judgment of God. And the only way to face it and survive is through the righteousness given to you by Christ. And wouldn't you know it, God freely offers it. And he says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe that promise. And God's patient age right now, God's merciful age right now, will be to your salvation. Brother and sister, born again of Christ already, perhaps our response is also repentance. We're growing complacent, numb, Maybe we are coasting through our spiritual pilgrimage right now. And we need to be reminded of what God has saved us from. This judgment in Amos chapter 3. God has saved us from this. That doesn't just induce gratitude. That stirs up devotion within us. Adoration within us. I was visiting with a local pastor just last week. Doesn't that, doesn't that make us want to worship just as passionately as we cheer for the football game last night? Just as excited to be with, with God and His people as to buy a new home or buy a new car or get new clothes? It does. It should. Let us repent. And let us also enjoy the great patience and mercy of our saving God. And let that stir us up to passion, passion and gratitude and devotion and adoration, celebration. Because the judgment that you and I are rightfully deserving, same judgment Israel was getting in Israel, that judgment we deserved before we found Christ has been absolved in Christ. We are now actually on the inverse of where Israel was. Remember verse 2? God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'm going to punish you for all of your iniquities. You and I had the opposite first impression with God. We were under punishment because of all our iniquities. But then God intervened through Christ. And now we are known by him. We belong to him. We are right with Him. So unbeliever, 
come to Christ today in faith and in repentance and renounce the path of destruction and find the path of life in walking with God and enjoying Jesus forever. And Christian, shore up your commitment to God. This is my thought every day walking through Amos. Lord, forgive me. Make me a man of righteousness and godliness, a man marked by Christ. That should be our cry. That and immense thankfulness. Father in heaven, we do praise you for your justice. That nothing escapes your watchful eye and sin will be dealt with. But dare I say it, Father, we thank you more that you've dealt with our sin and the punishment and penalty we deserve in Christ. Truth be told, God, we could not look and listen to your judgment against Israel and survive if it were not for the offer of grace in Jesus. But you are not slow to fulfill your promise of coming back and gathering us to heaven. You are being patient so that People won't perish. They'll come to you in repentance. And you've pr promised that those who repent of their sin and place their faith in you and believe in you and trust in the promise that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You've promised that those people will be saved. And God, that is where we set all of our faith and all of our hope that you will keep your word. I know that I deserve judgment. But I'm thankful today to rest in Christ's grace and salvation. Forgive me, Lord, when I grow complacent and negligible and lax. Help me instead to be a man marked by Christ. Please, this morning we ask that you save the lost. And that even in, in the face of such a heavy passage of Scripture, you would encourage and build up your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.